Dear Saxa community, Black Lives Matter. The world is changing instant by instant. As a result, some of the episodes for this series were recorded before the national unrest due to the murders of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Tony McDade, Rayshard Brooks, Dominique Remy Fells, and Raya Milton, as well as many more Black and African American people in recent days. They were the victims of brutality, as well as systemic racism, white supremacy, injustice, and inequality. Producer Erica Lee and I want to echo the thoughts of our colleagues who host Saxa's The First Five Years podcast, Erica Aguiar and Agassi Rodriguez, in offering a message of support and a call to action for our student affairs communities. Black Lives Matter. Oppression is embedded in the structure of America, in policing and criminal justice at all levels of education and in every other institution in our country. Racism and white supremacy serve as the foundation for the systemic oppression of people of color in student affairs as well. Black Lives Matter. Our Black and African American and other colleagues of color persist through not only recent trauma or those covered by the media, but the trauma, racial battle fatigue, inequity, and oppression they experience every day. This has always been the case in the United States. Black Lives Matter. In order to serve as allies and co-conspirators, white staff, graduate students, and faculty must educate themselves, not only to be good colleagues, not only to be instrumental in helping students understand the concepts of racism, inequity, justice, but also to actively, consistently, and intentionally dismantle oppressive structures to create an equitable future. White colleagues can neither dismantle nor rebuild without the tools to do the work. Knowledge and understanding of the history of race and an awareness of practices in and beyond student affairs that are grounded in racist systems, structures, and policies. We affirm that Black Lives Matter always. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SACSA's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher. I'm an assistant professor and the Student Affairs Program Coordinator in the College of Education at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. While the podcast is focused on current issues, events, and trends, it's also important to get to know a little bit about our guests as we engage in our work and learning together, since we're all more than just our jobs. My guest today is Erica Aguiar at the University of Florida. Welcome. I am happy to get to talk with you today. Would you mind by starting and telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in your current role? Well, hi, everyone, and Michelle, thank you so much for having me today. Uh, so like she said, my name is Erica Aguiar, and I serve as the Assistant Director of the Matchin Florida Opportunity Scholars Program here at the University of Florida. It's a need-based scholarship program for first-generation students who come from low-income backgrounds. And kind of a fun fact, I'm actually an alum of the program, so it's really cool to kind of be full circle and give back in, in ways that you know, I was given. And so after I graduated from UF in 2015 with a bachelor's degree in telecommunications, I went on to get my master's at Bowling Green State University, loved my time there, 
and came right back to Florida for this job. It was very, the universe aligned for me to be able to, to do this work. And I've been here ever since. So it's been a really, really cool kind of twisty turny journey. And as an alum, perhaps you're very invested in what you're doing. So very, very much. Awesome. Um, so can you talk a little bit, what are some of your hobbies outside of work? And I'll qualify that by saying, feel free to include things we're allowed to do right now, as well as things <laughs> you like to do, but maybe we're not supposed to do right now. That is a great qualifier because my number one hobby is travel. Mm -hmm. Not doing that right now. I actually had four trips canceled due to COVID-19 and I'm happy to stay home and, and do my part. I'm a little sad about that, but totally here for the cause. Outside of that, I love to read, love uh, traveling in movies. Um, I'm also not able to use my, my Regal Pass right now, which makes me a little sad. So re-watching some classics at home. And I've recently found baking. I won't say I'm good at it, but I found it. So it's kind of a, a labor of love right now to figure out what I'm actually talented at in the baking area. That's really cool. Do you have a preference like breads and things that are more savory or cookies, sweets, brownies? Have I've been doing, yeah, a little more of the sweets. I have made focaccia. It came out okay. Won't say it came out great, but I have, my favorite thing that I've made so far is coconut macaroons, which are not macarons. I learned the difference recently. And I found this recipe from Food Network and it's so easy. And I ate all of them in one day, which was not probably the best, but so, so, so good. So it was really fun to be able to make something and be like, oh, this was easy and it came out exactly as I anticipated. Excellent. That's very good news. Um, so what are some things that you're reading, watching, or listening to? You said you like movies. So what's on your list right now? So I am currently reading The Water Dancer by Ta-Nehisi Coates. It's, um, I think, his first fiction, and it's really, really fantastic. Right now, I'm listening to him, a big podcaster, so it's so cool to be on a podcast. Mm -hmm. I'm listening to Radio Lab. It is a kind of science podcast, but it's very storytelling-based, and it's, I mean, it's my absolute favorite. I listen to it all the time, and it really expands kind of my knowledge area, because I'm certainly not in STEM or in science. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually watching um, The West Wing for the first time, which people are so shocked that I've never seen it before. It is fantastic. But that's kind of been fun to watch something and really get a lot of references. Um, but it's also a little interesting because this show was in early 2000s and so much of it is still relevant. So it's, right. it's really fascinating to see how much has changed and well, how much has not. <laughs> that's great. I will tell you, my favorite Radio Lab ep episode is the one called The Bad Show. Yes, it's so good. Yes. Oh, I love that show. It's um, fantastic. Do you have a favorite quote that you'd share? This is a little, um, it's a little funny. My favorite quote, I say this anytime a student leaves my office or anytime a friend leaves my home, I say, don't let anyone steal your sparkle. And I've said that since grad school. I worked with tour guides and every time they leave on a tour, I would say that. And I know that that sounds kind of surface level, but for me, especially working with first-gen students, imposter syndrome is a big thing that I experience and a lot of my students do. And I, when I'm really stressed, try to remind myself that no one has the power to make me feel inferior if I don't allow them to. Mm -hmm. And don't, don't let anyone kind of come in and, and take your power from you because we have so much within ourselves. So it is my like life mantra that is awesome 
Um, oh, okay. So I have one more get to know you activity. And this one is a would you rather. Okay. So I'm yes, interested I'm ready. to see what your response will be. So would you rather go back and relive your first year as an undergraduate college student or go back and relive your first year as a student affairs professional? Ooh. That is, that is tough. My first year of undergrad was so hard. It, I, if we kind of made a checklist of challenging things that students face, I think I went through most of them. And I don't know that I'd want to relive it, but I think, I, I think I might want to go back and visit it as I am now to say, you know, things that felt so intense in that moment really were so important in shaping where I am now. But if I just had to relive do it again. I think I would do my first year as a professional because I'm really proud of the growth that I've made and the amount of work that I've been able to do in that time. But that first year of work was really, I mean, it's such a learning opportunity. You're not done after grad school by any means. And I, I learned a lot on the job. Well, that's great. And it sounds like maybe you've become the person you needed as an undergrad student. Mm-hmm. That's 100%. Great. It's a great way to put it. All right. Well, tell us, and you've touched on this a little bit, but tell us about your journey into higher education to begin with. And then everybody has their, this is how I ended up in student affairs story. So what's yours? So when I was in high school, I was I'm a high achiever and it was really interesting to start looking at colleges because my parents didn't have the context of, of college. They both immigrated from Cuba. My mom started at college and then got a job and earning money was more important at that time. So the, the power of education was always really important. And I remember telling my parents, well, I like, I want to go to UF and they're like, okay, great. I talked to a guidance counselor and not a super uplifting story. She said that she didn't think I could get in. So then my, yeah, right. Sometimes I'm just blown away by, by people, but I use that as a motivator, made a motivator to say, okay, well then I'm going to get in. And when I did, my parents were so proud and then told me that it wasn't, it wasn't feasible, wasn't something that was going to be able to happen. And that is, you know, one of the hardest lessons I've ever learned was that no matter how hard you work, there are just some things that, you know, are not equitable and that money would, you know, really fix. And then I got this letter from the program that I now work for saying, hey, congrats on being accepted. Here's a full ride. And I took it to a guidance counselor. I took it to one of my favorite teachers because it looked like spam. They're, how does this happen? And they were like, no, this is real. And I, I could cry now, I lost it. And I still have that letter framed in my office. So it's, it's, I think that ties so much into why I do what I do now because there are hundreds of me, there are thousands of me. You know, on, every time I speak to one of my students and they tell me their story, I mean, I've gotten to call students and tell them that they were accepted into this program. And I hear family members crying in the background I've had a student tell me like just she was in disbelief and she said I've been a gator my whole life and I can't believe that I get to come here and learn and be part of this experience and it that is so important to what I do now in being able to be like you said the person that I that I needed at that time mm -hmm. and when I got to college you know was part of this program really proud to be first gen I had a really 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 hard first year and actually I met one of my best friends now who was in the program with me when we were in training to teach the university's intro to UF class. And I did that and I remember my first, what we call co-instructor, so the staff member I taught with, 
she said, you know, you can do this like for real. You can get paid, not much, but you can get paid to work in this field. And I was set. I was set after my sophomore year. I knew this is what I wanted to do. And so then I majored in student affairs as so many of us do. Um, and I think a lot of my experiences in undergrad, a lot of personal experiences have made me so prepared for what I do now. So was the master's degree. I focused a lot of my work at Bowling Green on first-gen students. And that's really, for a lot of people, I think grad school is the first time you go from being advised as a student to really being that, that person and no longer having the ability, well, you can, you can ask for help, but you're making decisions. And so all of that kind of culminated into this experience that I'm in now in, in working with first-gen students. So it was you know, every single piece of it was so crucial to where I'm at now that I don't know that I could have changed anything and ended up in the same place. That's great. So you went through the program, you went away, and you got those letters at the end of your name, now you're back. Tell us a little bit about the program. Like what are the, the core elements of the program that you work with? So we are, like I said, a, a need-based scholarship program and that's really important. So there's two pieces to what we do. Um, students are admitted on their own merit to the university and we kind of, once they're in, do a lot of backward, background work, I should say, with financial aid to determine if they are eligible. And there's quite a few parameters. Um, I won't give you too many of them, but we're looking for students who are historically underserved and, and coming from low SES backgrounds. We want the students who have the capacity, have the ability, have been admitted, but money is an important factor. That's, that's always been our kind of mission. So we you know, admit them into this program and our office specifically runs kind of the programmatic support. As you might know, studies show that you can give students all the financial aid they need. They will not be as successful if they don't have people invested in their success. And that, that is what we do. So we, in each year we bring in 300 students. This year we'll bring in um, about 350. So 1,200, 1,250 students on campus at any given point are going to be going through workshops, financial literacy lessons. In their first year, they'll have a peer mentor. In their kind of senior year, we're really focusing on the transition out, thinking about Schlossberg's kind of in throughout, really hitting all of these different pieces to their experience and also building social capital. I think that's at the core of what we do is helping students, whether it is medical school or to become a student affairs practitioner or business, that they may not have those people surrounding them, but that we have those connections. And I think those are kind of the, the core pieces and really leading with the prideful part. Our students are so proud to be first gen. They are constantly advocating. They are on the, you know, kind of front lines of, of student involvement. I mean, you're talking study abroad. We have a student who got paid to go to Germany for a year to do research. I'm student body vice president and treasurer a couple of years ago. Those are the things that are really important to us. We know that these high impact practices are what make college so transformational. And we find that for many first gen students, if you are going to college and having to work, those aren't experiences you can have. So that's kind of at the core of what we do as well as making sure that our students can graduate debt free and focus on the things that we know make college significant rather than a 40 hour work week and classes, you know, and whatever else is happening in their lives. So I love how you said, um, you know, the financial part's important, but it's that investment that if somebody cares about me and my success, how have you sort of mirrored that 
in getting faculty and other administrators um, on campus invested, yes, in your program for sure, but also in first-gen students more broadly. We will not stop talking about first gen. If you ask us to give a presentation, we're there. So we've gotten in front of almost every group that we can to talk about first gen. And one of the most important things, and I can't tell you how crucial this is, is to lead with the positives. We take an asset-based approach. And we, we know that there is research out there to say that completion rates for first gen students are significantly lower. We know that there is research out there that says they will experience imposter syndrome and survivor's guilt, and they will have a harder time. We, I know all that, and they do too, they've lived it. We're gonna lead with the things that make them really unique and special. So we talk about the fact that their resiliency is unmatched, and that when that first chem exam comes out and they did poorly, their ability to take constructive criticism and work harder is beyond what some other students can attain. Mm -hmm. And all of these pieces of their experience that are really, really positive, that's what we're telling people. And we also come with the facts. You know, we come in with, and here's what our students have done. One of my favorite quotes from um, our namesake, Dr. Bernie Matchin, who was president of the University of Florida prior to our current president, he said, we're not giving out a handout, we're giving a hand. And, and we tell people, we're not taking students and saying, all right, here's an A, or, you know, here is, we're just going to let you into everything. Absolutely not we're telling them that we're gonna be the support you need, the, the equalizer in some ways. And I think when we have faculty and staff understand that and we show them that these students would be successful without you, but gosh, don't you wanna be part of that success and help them achieve even more? They're on board, but you know, for some faculty and staff, we need the data. We need to be able to prove that our first to second year retention rate is as high or that our six year graduation rate is as high. And we've done those things. But no one, we're not convincing anyone if we start the conversation with, and here's how awful it is for these students. Right. And then the other thing is that we get our students to, to do the, the stories and, and tell their story for themselves. Anytime we're presenting, we're there because it is important. You know, I'm first gen, I can share my story. It's a little dated now. So we're going to bring in the students to, to talk about it. Um, I remember, we'll never forget, I had a student, he's now an engineer at, I mean, it might be L3 Harris, it's a huge company. And we had a supporter who was talking to him and said, gosh, well, wasn't it, did you feel like you were so behind when you came into college? And gosh, it must've been so challenging for you to complete your classes. And I, oh, I cringed, cause I was like, what? That, that's not what we're here for. And this student without missing a beat goes, actually I have uh, the highest GPA in some of my classes. And you know, this program has allowed me to have internships, but I'm also doing great. And I think that is so, so, so important because they know what they're doing. They are so talented. I wasn't there with them in high school. I am just here. And we are, as student affairs practitioners are here to just be that additional support, but they, they've got it themselves. And I think that is what really convinces faculty and staff to believe in what we do. Well, it, as you're talking, it makes me think about, there are some students who come to college and expect the university to give them a degree first-gen students come to college and expect they will have to earn their degree. And they have earned things every step of the way, so they do have that skill set that you're talking about. And um, yeah, they, they might not hit it out of the park on the very first exam, 
but by the time they learn this is what you're looking for and they will come and ask questions too it's it's learning those skills and um not the student learning those skills but faculty and administrators learning they have those skills so that's great yeah that's uh, so true what uh so your work is to get the word out you know whether that's to students or to the university are there ways that you've seen the culture of the university change in regard to its relationship with its first-gen students as a result of or in partnership with the program? So when we initially began in 2006, there was a lot of kind of pushback from administrators because, I mean, if you really boil it down, everyone at our institution knows about this program, and it's a marker that says, I'm first and I come from a low-income background and there was a lot of, of thoughts of okay well will a student wear a name tag or a t-shirt with this on there it's a it's a giant sign if you know what this program is about some experiences that for some people are really hard to talk about and in 15 years it has become this really huge point of pride and you know I have talked to people from across the country who work in first gen I advise quite a few schools in the Southeast on first gen, and it is very different here that from our president down, first gen is, is a big deal. And applications will ask students, are you part of the MFOS program or are you first gen? We have in our, and I'm gonna get this wrong a little bit, but in our student government um, operations, there is a first gen cabinet that was created not by, we didn't push for that, but the you know, student body president a couple of years ago understood how important first gen was and said this needs to be represented at the student government level. And I think a lot of that has been us, again, just going everywhere and anywhere and talking about this because I think a lot of it is, this is an invisible identity. So a lot of faculty and staff don't know that this is an experience that students are having. And especially at a place like the University of Florida, land-grant institution, it's very competitive to get into. It is, you know, not the norm to be first-gen. About 20% of our population is, which is a really huge number, but, you know, that means 80% have some sort of family member with a degree. Mm -hmm. And it has taken a lot of work to, again, lead with the positives because, again, if we had come in and said, well, here's all the really challenging things and you should believe in us because, I don't know that, I think there would have still been support, but I don't know that the pride would have been there. And I mean, I, we have our hashtag, it's hashtag FirstGenUF. And when I search that on Twitter or Instagram, it's really beautiful to see students that I've never met who might not have interactions with our office leading with that. And in interviews, I'll walk around our career showcase and I'll hear students, the first thing they say is, hi, my name is Erica and I'm a first-gen student. Mm -hmm. And that is so, so, so powerful. And that's been a huge culture shift. And, you know, there's a lot of Privilege, I'll say. We were created by, like I said, our then president, Dr. Matchin. A lot of privilege with being created by the president, right? People are going to believe in this. So I certainly want to recognize that. But we have really been able to use our networks and leverage and just actively believe so hard in our students that I think the, the shift is now that you want to be first gen. Like you, you want to support first gen. Your colleagues are doing it. Why, why aren't you, right? We've, we've had faculty members who have been like, well, another, you know, I just started here and another colleague said that you all do these cool things. Like I want to be involved or I was first gen or, you know, my mom was first gen and, and I can't believe all the things she accomplished and now I want to give back. So it, 
it, 15 years has taken a long time, but I think we're in a really, really incredible place for both students in our program and then our general first-time population. Well, and I appreciate how you said your president was the catalyst for this. And I know you have some pretty strong funding streams also mm -hmm. supporting the program. When you talk to um, or present about your program or you talk to other institutions that are interested in starting to build that may not have some of those same um, financial and other resources available, what do you identify, like, what would you say if I'm at another institution and I'm like, where do I start? How do I begin to build this community of first-gen scholars at my institution? What, what do you think are the key points? I think, you know, the first part is to lead with the positives. But before you can do that, I think you got to know who, who your community is. So who are your students? Do you have a way to track them? I can't tell you how many schools I've spoken to that have these really great ideas, but just might not have a good handle on who is there. So before we can serve, we need to know who we're serving. So starting with, with that, you know, if you have a connection in your assessment office or in institutional research, that's a really sometimes easy thing to pull. And that can tell you, you might have so many first-gen students who you might not even know are there because you just, you just didn't have the info. And, you know, I think I always tell people to, to free the data, figure out who it is, figure out your definition. Gosh, there are like seven or eight floating ones about, you know, parent earned a bachelor's degree, parent completed or parent attempted, and how do siblings play in? So figuring out, I think, at the core who you're actually wanting to serve, leading with the positives. You know, I, I always bring students into everything I do. So do you have, you know, three or four students you're connected to that can be almost an exec board and, and be advisory? We have a really cool um, advisory council of people from all across campus or ombuds, academic advisors, financial aid folks, bursar. We also have to have students in that though, because while it's great that we have this widespread understanding of you know, first gen and this helps us hear what institutional barriers there are, if your students are not there, you're not serving them because what happened last year, what, how you supported students last year could be different from this year. So making them, I think the core, whoever you can find, I have rarely found that a first-gen student doesn't want to help. When I say this is to improve the experience of someone else, even if it's really hard and they're telling you stuff that has happened that you're like, how, how could we let this happen to a student? How can we let that bill go unpaid even though you had financial aid? Or how can we let you feel housing insecure or food insecure? Those are lessons that we have to learn to be able to support better. So, okay, that was a long-winded way of saying, I think know your students and really try to pull together who your key players are because I promise you there are people on your campus who are invested and are trying to find a way to give back and might not have the structure. And when you start understanding who's willing to do some of the work, which is gonna be additional work and outside of work hours sometimes, it is so important, I think, to have people who have ears all over because then you hear practices that the bursar is doing that connect to financial aid, that connect to what you do, but you didn't really know, and, and bring those students in. Um, but, but speak to everyone because you never know who's gonna resonate with that experience. So we've done new faculty orientation. We will present to almost every academic college. So if they have like uh, an academic advisors meeting, that's a great place to start because above everything else, we know our students should be and are likely meeting with academic advisors. 
and just, you don't have to have an established program to have advocates across campus. And when that starts to become part of it, where students can start feeling more comfortable to share that they're first gen, then I think we know how to program, we know how to build t-shirts and how to order pizza, but how do we build the culture? I think you've, you've got to kind of start at the roots and, and grow from there. But yeah, if your president can say they love first gen, that's helpful too. <laughs> that's great. So starting at the roots, if there were a few things that you wish everyone who worked in higher education knew about first-gen students, and you've already touched on this, I want to give you a chance to either reiterate or expand upon, what would those things be? I think the first one is, and I, if you ever have a conversation with me, I say this all the time, it is all about the assets. It is, if nothing else, just think about all the incredible things that our students are accomplishing. And, you know, especially now during current times, I have students who are back at home. You know, I have a student right now who four siblings in a one bedroom apartment and they are still like working on their degree, working on research from home, all of these different things. Like our students are so, so, so talented. So remember those positives and remember the things that are going to continue to push them. And, and the thing I don't want to happen is for people to think that I mean, ignore the challenges. We more than anyone have to recognize those and that's, that's part of my job. But let's lead with the things that they can do or if a student shares something with you that's really hard, how can we use that as a lesson and enable them to continue to grow? The other thing I think, you know, I said this earlier, is to remember that we are helping students be successful, but they are their own success. Um, one of the things that I see a lot in kind of our world is this idea of giving a voice to the voiceless. I actually don't believe in that. Our students have their own voice. I'm just giving you the ability to, to use it, or I'm helping you do that. So it's all about, you know, what barriers are preventing you from speaking out. So remember that we're giving students a hand. We're not giving them a handout. They have earned, they have worked, they have grinded, and they are here to learn, and they, they just need us as support and equalizers. Um, but my biggest thing, and we, this is how we lead our presentations, is to assume first gen until proven otherwise. It is not going to hurt anyone if you assume that a student that you're working with has no experience with college. So ignore the alphabet soup of higher ed, spell out some of the different things. Don't assume anyone knows what a bursar is or what, I can't tell you how many students I speak with have no clue what, I'm, what the, I mean when I say, your financial aid refund. They're like, wait, what, what does that mean? How do I, or direct deposit, stuff that has become so much a part of our vernacular. And you know what, if you're treating a student like first gen and they mention, yeah, my dad actually went here. Okay, great. They probably have some college knowledge, but it's such a good, I think, foundational lesson because even if their parents do have a degree, it could be from another country. It could be from a wildly different institution. Mm. It's still going to help everyone. I, I liken it to, um, you know, um, universal design, and that it's going to help everyone benefit. It's also going to help the students that need it the most. So lead with just that assumption, and you, I think, will really never get it wrong. Right. Well, and just because you have a parent or parents who attended doesn't mean you listen to them. So you might need <laughs> to hear it anyway. So. Oh, is that true? <laughs> so if I were to talk to your students, um, what have you heard them say about the program? What do you think they would highlight in terms of their experiences? The thing that I hear the most is actually not about the money, though that's important. I, our students are very thankful to 
not have to work. But what I think I hear the most that really can, can ground me when it's, when work is busy and times are hard is what they have been able to do because they didn't have to work. So students who had never left the state of Florida who are now in Spain studying abroad. And they could do that because they could save up or you know, move you know, some of their financial aid that they got to another semester and be able to do those things that they were never have been able to do before. Or to be, we have a student who, like I said, went to Germany to do research and she could have never dreamed about that. And now she's got this degree in engineering is going to work to do research. And she said, if I had gone anywhere else, I would have gotten a similar education, but I would have never been able to do research because I couldn't afford to. Or for the students who are now going into student affairs, I think about one student who's just recently graduated from Bowling Green, actually. And, you know, as a first-gen student, he wouldn't have ever known that that existed, but because of what we're able to do and help students, again, build that social capital, they, they have that connection and they, they can see beyond. Um, one of the analogies that I have kind of found, you know, we hear when we're talking about women in any field, the glass ceiling. And I don't, I don't know that that applies to first gen, but I always say it's kind of like a concrete slab. And our students, they know that something is beyond that. They have no clue what it is. Or so maybe it's a blacked out window. I don't know what it is, but that's what we're able to help shatters. We're able to shed light on what actually exists. Because even for me, when I got my master's degree, I still have questions about what the heck I'm doing in higher ed. Like, don't ask me about a PhD because I, I have no clue. It, you know, and here I am, this is the work that I do daily. It still never stops. So I think a lot of our students, just the, the eye-opening and the ability to, you know, we have these donors who have given thousands of dollars and don't even know them. And that kind of, you know, strong belief is such a driving factor in our student success. Um, and, and we really do become like family to them. You know, we've had students who've had family members pass and who have had significant pushbacks and you know mental health crises, crises, crisis. That word, sorry. <laughs> and they're able to come to us because we're we're kind of like family in that way that they may not be able to call home, but when something happens, they have us. And you know, I have students who it's taken six years to graduate, and they come back and say that they would have quit, but I kept emailing them and following up with them and, because we know them so well. Mm -hmm. And and you know, I think that's the case for a lot of first gen programs is. And just having someone who really believes in everything you can do, it, it makes all the difference. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I think you might know this, but there's a pandemic right now. Yep. And when you think about your program and your students, how, I mean, it affects all of us individually. It affects all, it affects all of us institutionally. How have you seen it affect the community of scholars that you work with? I think it's, yeah, we're all experiencing this in such wildly different ways. And, and also I think it's just hard, it's hard for everyone. For my students, I think about my seniors who have worked so hard. And high school graduation is really, really cool. College graduation, I mean, I brought in my grandparents, I brought everyone because to be the first person to you know think about a lot of our students um, are the children of immigrants and to think that their parents left you know wherever home is for them for you to have a degree and for them to not be able to walk 
is, I, I can't talk about it without getting really misty because it is such a, an important part of the, of the college experience. I mean, it's the, it's the cap off, it's the end. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think they've, they've really felt it in that way. A lot of our students are transitioning home and, you know, the transition to college is hard, but the transition home, when you're still in the middle of a semester, has been really hard on students. You know, ignoring technology issues, Wi-Fi issues, space issues. For our students, you know, three hours in class means probably six or nine hours outside studying. How do you talk to your family members about, I know that I'm not in class right now, but I cannot also watch my sibling or go to the grocery store or do anything because in order for me to be successful, I tell this to my students all the time, college, you gotta be selfish. Like it's, you've really gotta focus on what you're doing. And that has been really hard is translating that experience for family members to understand that I might be on Zoom, but that doesn't mean that I can be doing something else. And, and I've seen my students, you know, take on a lot of childcare responsibilities, a lot of financial contributions, having to go back to work when they're home because family lost jobs. And I think we're really trying to step in and help in any way that we can. So our financial financial aid offices, you know, we have a program called Aidigator, lots of institutions do, to fill in some of those costs, right? So have you been working from an on-campus lab for your computer? Can we help get you one now? We created this graphic for students about how to talk about college with your family. So I, you know, we created the headphone rule, right? So if headphones are in, don't bother, but if they're out, I can still engage and maybe I'm, you know, studying, but can help if I need to, or you know, these are my designated study hours, print a schedule and put them on the fridge. And I, I think it's impacted students in that way because again, you know, if, if I had a child, I'd be like, yeah, I understand that you're on Zoom. That's your professor. I'm going to be over here. The, the same doesn't track. Um, even my mom, you know, I'm working from home and she was, she's not working right now and was texting me. It's like, mom, I'm in a meeting. And she's like, oh, I forgot that, like you do these things. So it's, it's been really, really hard. Of course, the financial impact has been significant. One of the really great things for our students in our program is that they are fully funded. So many of them have not felt the impact in the same way because we have paid their rent. They, we've given them that money. They have money for food. They're still feeling it in a lot of ways, but there's a certain privilege there, I think. Mm -hmm. But we've really tried to spend time connecting with them virtually. We did a really, really cool um, virtual celebration for our graduating students. We typically host them for dinner at the president's house, and that's a big event. It's got, you know, the best food. They get this alumni pin. We weren't able to do that, so we mailed them kind of goodie bags that had the alumni pin that had, a, you know, a handwritten note, you know, had their first, like, alumni sticker, and we did this virtual celebration, and what was really cool is typically it's on, like, a Tuesday or Wednesday, Family members are not invited because it's almost impossible for them to come, but they were able to bring them and they could bring their siblings. And we had an open mic and one of my students who I work with really closely, bless her heart, she sobbed the whole time and she unmuted herself to, for this open mic and just cried to, and it was all these donors and faculty and staff and the president. And she said, you don't understand what it means for you to be here and just to believe in me. You don't even know my name. And I think that was such a cool moment because I think we had to do something to say, you did it. Might not be the way we expected. Gosh, I hope we can bring you back to campus to do something else. But that was a really nice moment for us to, I think, acknowledge the really trying times and just spend an hour feeling really thankful for what they've done. And we've gotten some really, really positive feedback. So 
this is the, the hardest thing that I think I've ever done is, is work during a pandemic for so many of us. And luckily I can work and um, have access to you know, housing and food. It was such a beautiful moment to be able to kind of turn COVID-19 on its head and be like, we're still going to do this, this celebration for our students. Um, and one family member spoke and it you know, still makes me cry to think about because we really never get to meet them, but they're so important to our student experience. Mm -hmm. I love that you're able to bring, it's more than a silver lining. You know, this is a new contribution to the experience and a new highlight of the celebration that, um, again, in the, this is what we thought was going to happen world, you wouldn't have even known that was a possibility. So that's mm -hmm. really beautiful. Um, okay. So what else would you like to share? What should I have asked you about that? I haven't, um, resources, points of connection, what else you want to talk about? Um, so one thing I would say, we are really open. So if you ever have questions or would like to talk more about first gen, this is my jam. This is the stuff that I love. My dissertation, though I'm not in a PhD program or an EDD, it will be on first gen students. So I'm, I don't believe in keeping any of our information to ourselves. If you have questions you want to hear, let us know. Um, I am leading um, a couple of webinars coming up. Um, I just did one for NODA. I'm doing one through um, an online company whose name I'm blanking on, but it's about supporting first-gen students to orientation. I'm doing another one through NASPA about, um, actually kind of perfect for what we're talking about, being a first-gen professional in student affairs. Um, I actually had a NASPA presentation that I was going to present that was um, unfortunately canceled. So um, I don't have the links to those, but I, you know, we can, I think we can link them when we send this out. Yeah. But, you know, just these students are so incredible. And I, I really hope that when you meet a first-gen student, the first thing I say is, I'm just really proud of you for being here. And, you know, making sure that they know what, what an important contribution they make to our campuses. And so the other part that I'll share is that, so this podcast is part of a larger SACSA podcast. I actually host the other one, the first five years. It's a podcast with myself and Agassi Rodriguez, also at Clemson. And we talk about what it's like to be a new professional during kind of your first five years in higher ed. So give that a listen as well. This is a cool crossover in some ways. Um, and follow me on Twitter. I don't know if that's too much of a shameless plug, <laughs> but I'm Erica M underscore Aguiar. That's A-G-U-I-A-R. I think it's easier than my email. Um, and I'd love to connect. I really, really, really love talking about this if it's not apparent as how long-winded my answers have been. No, you are great. And as a first-gen college student, dot, 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 faculty member, um, I just love the enthusiasm that you bring, the genuine sense of care that comes through in what you're sharing. And um, I suspect your students would say this or probably have, but they're very lucky to have you. So Thank you. I really appreciate your time. Um, you know, so the way I craft the script is, so we leave on a, a note of hope, but you have been nothing but hope. So this oh. is a shift of gears, but um, an additional contribution. Um, what are some things right now that bring you joy? Can be work, can be life, can be random. I think right now, one of the things that brings me kind of the most joy is really long walks. So I typically, every other day, I do a lot of yoga. Um, luckily, my studio the local place um, has been doing like a lot of virtual classes. So I've still been able to do that. But just going for like a two mile walk, 
it resets me. There's something about just getting outside and reminding myself that, you know, we are still, we're still here and we're still able to do things. I think sometimes it, it'll dawn on me as I'm sitting at my kitchen table that I can't go back to work in the same way and that nothing we've ever done will be the same. But um, I think that brings me a lot of joy in my students. Um, they still, I did a like drop-in hours. They just could log on to Zoom and chat with me. And two or three, I said, okay, so like, what's, you know, what's your concern? And they said, I just want to check in on you. Just wanted to see how you're doing. Excuse me? <laughs> Weeping. I was so, you know, it was so beautiful. And I think that that, you know, that brings me a lot of joy in my work is to know that they are still, despite so many different things, are checking in on me. And, and that's, I think, absolutely incredible. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate this. It's been fun just to sort of soak up your positivity <laughs> and your energy and um, we can all use as much of that as we can get right now. So I thank you for that. Thank you. Um, so today's essay today podcast is brought to you by Saxa and we thank them for their support and they support both podcasts. So make sure you check in on Erica and Agassiz's podcast as well. Addis additionally, this show would not be possible without producer Erica Lee, not to be confused with our guest today. <laughs> so very much gratitude to you, um, Erica and Erica. I'm grateful to both of you. My name is Michelle Botcher, and it has been a pleasure to host this episode. Have a beautiful day, and thank you so much for your time, Erica. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Have a great day. <laughs>